that, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Though the subject I'm assigned to tackle this evening is that of the Israelite conversion in the tribulation, I have entitled this message, The First Christian Nation in History. One Messianic Bible teacher wrote the following, and I quote, The outstanding miracle of the ages will occur when the entire nation of Israel accepts Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. She will become the first Christian nation in history. There are some who say the United States and Great Britain are Christian nations. However, this is not the truth. For the world has never really seen a Christian nation as yet. That is, they have not seen an entire nation converted to God at one time. But God promised that this would happen to Israel. And here in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul is discussing the subject of God's sovereignty in Israel's future restoration. The chapter begins with an important question that is still being debated in the church world almost 2,000 years after Paul posed it. In verse 1, if you would look at your Bibles, Paul writes and says, I say then, has God cast away his people? After all that Paul has said in the two previous chapters here in Romans concerning Israel's present state of rejection, unbelief, and disobedience, he anticipates that his readers in Rome will come to the conclusion that God must be done with the nation of Israel. The words cast away here literally mean rejected, as some of your Bibles translate it. So the question Paul is asking here is, has God rejected the nation of Israel completely and permanently? Now, the reason I add those words completely and permanently is to qualify Paul's question here in verse 1, because according to verse 15, Paul confirms that God has indeed rejected Israel, but that, re- that, but that rejection is only temporary. If you would look at verse 15, Paul writes and says, For if they're being cast away or rejected, speaking of the Jews, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Here in verse 15, Paul confirms in the first half of the verse that God has rejected Israel. But in the second half, he tells us that they will be accepted in the future. That's why Paul goes on to answer his own question in verse 1 with a resounding, certainly not. And he confirms it in verse 2. If you would, look at your Bible, verse 2. He confirms it by saying God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So what is Paul telling us? Or I'm sorry, what Paul is telling us here is that God's rejection of the Jewish nation is only temporary. So why did God reject Israel in the first place? Well, he did so because they rejected his son. So, as we'll see later here in chapter 11, we learn that a day is coming when Israel will accept Jesus as their Messiah, and then God will accept them again nationally as his people, and then they will become the first Christian nation in history. Here in Romans 11, Paul calls forth four witnesses that... uh, Four witnesses that present evidence to prove that God is not through with the Jews, nor is he done with the nation of Israel. In verse 1, 
The first witness that Paul called upon to testify of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel was himself. And the evidence that he presented was his own personal story. The fact that Paul was Jewish and saved was actually proof that God had not completely rejected the Jews. In verses 2 through 10, Paul used the historical account of the prophet Elijah to demonstrate that even in the darkest of times of Israel's history, God had, has always had a faithful Jewish remnant. Again, proving that God's rejection of the Jewish people is only partial. Then, in verses 11 through 25, Paul used the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as witnesses to provide proof that God has not permanently rejected his chosen people. Remember, part of God's purpose for Gentile salvation, as we're told here in Romans, was to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would desire it for themselves. Not only that, but Paul makes the case that if God was willing to reconcile the once unbelieving, disobedient, God-rejecting Gentile nations, then how much more is he willing to restore the once unbelieving, disobedient, Jesus-rejecting Jewish nation? And not only is he willing to restore his chosen people, Paul tells us that in the future that he will do just that, proving that God's rejection of the nation of Israel is only temporary. I like what Warren Wiersbe said about this section of Romans 11. He said this, Paul used the Gentiles to prove the Jews guilty of sin back in chapter 2, but here in chapter 11, he used the Gentiles to assure Israel of a future restoration. And finally, in the last 11 verses, verses 26 through 36, Paul calls forth his, for, calls forth his fourth, boy, that's uh, difficult to say, right? He calls forth his fourth and final witness to the stand to testify to the fact that God has not rejected the nation of Israel forever. And that witness is the most dependable witness of all of them. God himself. God himself. In verses 26 through 32, Paul shares three things that God is going to do in the future on behalf of the nation of Israel that provide proof that he has not permanently rejected his chosen people. And the first is found here in verses 26 and 27, where Paul tells us that God is going to send his son to save the Jewish people. According to verse 26... There's coming a day, notice, where all Israel will be saved. Now, let me tell you what the word all there means in the Greek. It means all. All of Israel will be saved. According to Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, all of the Jews who are alive at the time of the second coming of Christ will recognize the crucified Jesus as their Messiah repent of their sin and repent of their unbelief and receive him as Savior and Lord. Revelation 1-7 says this, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Referring to the Gentiles. Even they who pierced him. Referring to the Jews. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. 
Now that word earth there, as Dr. Ice has already pointed out, could be translated land. All of the tribes of the land of Israel will mourn because of him. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth the second time, he will be visible to everyone, Gentile and Jew alike. In fact, the last half of that verse, Revelation 1-7, is the future fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which declares, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, referring again to the nation of Israel, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me, or literally look to me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, that's why Paul goes on to say here in Romans 11, he goes on to say, as it is written. And what Paul's doing here is he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. And then he goes on to say, as it is written, the deliverer, who's that? That's the Messiah, God's son, Jesus, will come out of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, another name for the nation of Israel, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, In that day a fountain shall be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. It will be at this time that the Jewish people will experience a spiritual restoration as a fulfillment of God's promise to them of the new covenant. See, God promised Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, speaking, beginning with verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of the same in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24, when he said this and wrote, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And why will the fulfillment of the promise of this covenant occur when, Jew, when the Jews finally recognize Jesus as the crucified Christ? It's because it was the piercing of his body and the shedding of his blood on the cross that ratified that new covenant for them. 
If you remember, it was there in the upper room at his last Passover meal with his disciples that Jesus revealed this to to them. He said to them in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, and it says, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The apostle John tells us in John chapter 19, that when one of the soldiers pierced Jesus side with a spear, the blood and water came forth and that these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Zechariah 12, 10, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Listen, it was there at the cross of Christ where God opened a fountain for sin for the Jewish people. But sadly, most of them did not believe and accept it. But one day in the future, their eyes will be opened. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, repent of their sin, and receive him as Savior and Lord. And then God is going to send his son to save the whole nation. And they will be spiritually restored in their relationship to their Lord and become, again, the first Christian nation in history. (laughs) Preaching to the Jews at the temple, Peter summed it up this way. Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from from the presence of the Lord, and that he... Then may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. I'm sorry, until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, not only. Do we know that God's rejection of Israel is temporary because God is going to send his son to save the whole nation one day? But number two, he's also going to satisfy all his promises to them. If you would, look at verses 28 and 29. Paul writes and says, concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and and the calling of God are irrevocable. Even though most Jews have rejected the gospel, God still loves his chosen people. He loves the nation of Israel. And upon their acceptance, I'm sorry, upon their repentance and belief, God is going to restore the nation again to its place of privilege and blessing because of his unconditional promises to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because God is a covenant keeper, he cannot go back on his word, and he will not. He will satisfy all of his promises to his chosen people. Now, let's look at the third thing, because this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. The third thing that God is going to do in the future for Israel that proves that he has not permanently rejected them is he's going to show them mercy. He's going to show them mercy. If you would, look at verses 30 through 32. Paul writes and says, For as you 
referring to the Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these, referring to the Jews, he says, also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they may obtain mercy. Again, if God was willing to show mercy to the once unbelieving, disobedient, God-rejecting Gentile nations, then how much more will he show mercy to the once unbelieving, disobedient, Jesus-rejecting Jewish nation? Look at verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Back in Romans 1, Paul proved that all Gentiles were guilty of sin before God. Then in chapter 2, he proved that all Jews were guilty of sin before God. That's why in chapter 3, Paul said that both Jews and Gentiles have sinned and are all under sin. And because of that, a right standing before God through faith is available to all who believe. And Paul says the same thing here, except the subject here isn't so much righteousness before God as much as it is mercy from God. It's important to understand what mercy is, to understand what Paul is getting at here. Remember, justice is God giving to us what we deserve. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. But mercy is God not giving to us what we do deserve. And according to Paul, both the Gentiles and the Jews deserve justice. But God here, Paul tells us, offers them both mercy. See? And in the case of Israel, God is not going to give them what they deserve, which is to be permanently rejected and cut off. But instead, when the nation of Israel is being persecuted and surrounded by her enemies during the second half of the Great Tribulation, God will be merciful to her. If you would, as we wind things down, turn with me back to the prophet of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. And we're going to begin with verse 8. In verse 8, Zechariah tells us, And it shall come to pass in all the land, that's the land of Israel, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. During the last half of the tribulation, the Jewish people are once again going to suffer a large-scale persecution resulting in another holocaust. Two-thirds of the nation will be wiped out. According to Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, Satan is going to launch an all-out attack upon the nation of Israel And according to Daniel 9.27, he's going to use the Antichrist to accomplish it. The Antichrist is going to make a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel. But after three and a half years, he's going to break that covenant or that treaty as he comes to Jerusalem 
and commits the abomination of desolation by setting himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God and demanding to be worshipped as God. We're told that by Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, and by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. At that time, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 16 through 22, and in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, and verses 13 through 17, the faithful Jewish remnant will flee to the wilderness, to the city of Petra, as the Antichrist will then seek to destroy all the Jews that remain in the land. And two-thirds of them will be destroyed. But I want you to notice, look at what Zechariah says. He says, but one-third shall be left in it. God will show mercy by allowing the faithful remnant, which will be one-third of them, to escape. And then he writes and says in verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them As gold is tested. The fire here speaks of the tribulation and persecution that Israel is going to endure during that time. The Lord will use the fire of tribulation and persecution to do two things. To both purge and purify his people. In Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, it tells us that this period of time is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah tells us that it is a day that is great and there is none like it. Both the prophet Daniel and our Lord Jesus both said that it will be a time like the world has never seen and will never see again. But Israel will be saved out of it. If you would, look what Zechariah says. He says, they will call on my name. And look at this. And I will answer them. (laughs) I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Even though the nation of Israel deserves to be wiped out for their disobedience, God will have mercy on them. And he will save them when they call out to him. And when's this going to happen? Well, Jesus said to the rebellious Jews of Jerusalem in his day, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. I'm sorry, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until. Very important word. Until you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to cry out to their Messiah. And when the rebellious Jews are purged from the land and the remaining remnant repent of their unbelief, recognize the crucified Jesus as their Messiah and receive him as Savior and Lord, then he will respond by coming to them a second time and he will save the entire nation from all of her enemies. And again, when he saves them at this time, they will become again the first Christian nation in history. So, here in verses 26 through 32, 
Paul makes it clear that God is going to do three things in the future on behalf of the nation of Israel to prove that he has not permanently rejected his chosen people. He's going to send his son to save them. He's going to satisfy all of his promises to them and show them mercy. Over, the, over three chapters, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul skillfully and successfully defends the sovereignty of God concerning the nation of Israel by proving that even though the Jewish people as a whole have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God's rejection of his chosen people is only partial and temporary. In other words, their fall is not fatal, futile, fruitless, or final. God's promises to them will stand. Not one of them will fail. Now, as I close, let me make two important practical applications for us tonight from this text. Number one, why do we care? We're Gentiles, mostly, right? But why is this important to us? Well, I think it's important to us because... As we see the faithfulness of God in keeping his word to his chosen people, Israel, we, as those who have been chosen in Christ, can be confident that God will do the same for us. That's good news, isn't it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, he said, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. And number two. The second application I want to make tonight is this. The same fountain that God has opened for the Jews to wash away their sin and uncleanness in his sight is offered to Jew too. And Jew and Jew and Jew. It's it's for us. In 1770, the English poet William Cowper wrote a hymn Based on Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. It's one of my favorite hymns. I I can hardly read the words to the hymn, let alone sing it without tearing up. It's a beautiful hymn. The first stanza goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. And they lose all their guilty stains. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. So the application for us is this. If you're here tonight and you're not in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, I implore you, turn from your sin, repent of your sin, and put your faith in the one who loves you and proved it by giving his son to you to die for all of your sins and to put them away forever. The Bible tells us very clearly, for sinner and saint alike, we have this wonderful promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word to us. Father, we thank you that though we are all, both Jew and Gentile, great sinners, your son is a greater savior. 
We're thankful, Lord, that your word tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 5 at the end of the chapter that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound because of what your son has done for us. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, as we look at your plan for the ages and we see that one day you're going to save the whole nation of Israel, Father, we know that in the end, Lord, you win. (laughs) You win. And everybody that should be saved is going to be saved, and we know that. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as believers, Father, to be encouraged in knowing that Lord, no matter what happens in the future while we're still here and even through the tribulation, you're in total control. And Father, while we're living here, we can count on you to keep all of your promises to us because all your promises to us in Christ are yes and amen. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the precious blood of Jesus that continues to cleanse us from every sin. That way, we can always stand assured that we stand before you, Father, in good standing. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.